This is an ABC podcast. If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine? Unfortunately, in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get it. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. Australia seems to have left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvalis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Fran Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And Laura Tingle's going to join us shortly because we're just days away now from the federal budget. So we'll be talking about the slew of pre-budget leaks, which seem to be a fixture of politics these days, PK, and what they tell us about the government's focus in the upcoming election. We're also going to talk with Laura about the allegations that the late Labor Senator Kimberly Kitching was bullied, allegations that in the last couple of days have intensified since her funeral in Melbourne. But first, PK, Labor's big victory last weekend in the South Australian election, a surprise not so much in the actual victory, but I think in the sort of enormity of it, really. The inevitable question was asked of the federal libs after this state loss, is it a harbinger of bad news federally? Their answer, predictable, this election was fought on state issues. Labor's Penny Wong, though, was keen to put a very different lens on it. Scott Morrison was a drag on the Liberal vote here. I saw numbers that suggested that one in two South Australians, one in two, uh, were less likely to vote for Stephen Marshall when they were reminded that he and Scott Morrison were of the same party. Mm, A drag on the Liberal vote. What do you think, PK? Does the size of this Labor win make it more difficult for the Morrison government to insist there are no implications for the federal libs uh, at an election now, which will be called, has to be called within weeks? It was a pretty commanding win, wasn't it, Fran? I mean, for Labor. Uh, Labor is set to pick up at least six seats in the state parliament with a first preference swing of almost 8%. It's pretty brutal to sweep away, of course, the Premier, Stephen Marshall, who's now resigned very much. Um, I reckon column A, column B. I do think there are some federal messages in this poll, absolutely. And I do think that... Uh, that, that, you know, that the federal Liberal Party should be worried that their brand, their Liberal brand, is pretty much very damaged at the moment. So, yes, but are federal Labor over-egging it? Of course they are, mm-hmm. because Peter Melanowskis is a young, popular charismatic. I mean, the guy's got something of the X factor, I believe. I interviewed him. He's quite a charismatic figure. Um, And he was able to, in just one term after, what, 16 years of Labor rule, make the Liberal Party lose office after that, just that one That is time. incredible. I mean, that is such an unusual result. After 16 years in Labor, uh, of Labor government, they only had to spend four years in the wilderness before they're back. Yeah, so there's a few things here. Of course, I mean, if you look at the voting history in South Australia, you'd have to say it's a pretty strong um, Labor state. And the, the issues that were run during the election campaign were very much focused around state issues, including those, you know, ramping of ambulances. That was huge and that was overwhelming. This uh, alleged uh, polling that that Senator Wong referred to there, I put that actually to the new Premier um, and said, you know, did you see this polling? He said he didn't see this polling. I don't know. (laughs) I suppose that's not... That that is plausible, by the way, that he didn't. But he, you know, sure... 
Well, they don't, I'm not, I, I know leaders aren't privy to all of the polling. In fact, some of the polling is often in other circumstances, um, kept away from them because they don't want to get them oh, off. Yeah. yeah, so there's all sorts of things with polling. So it doesn't mean that I'm not, I'm not suggesting it's fabricated by Labor, but I think this, even the way it's framed, that polling, that and when reminded that they're in the same political party as Scott Morrison, I mean... What Peter Melanowskis did say to me on Aaron Breakfast this week was that if you're asking me about the, the role of the federal libs, I can tell you that Scott Morrison is not popular in South Australia definitively. And that is an issue, I think, for Scott Morrison because you can't translate this poll to the national poll. Anthony Albanese, there might be parallels between the kind of agenda that they're offering, a post-pandemic agenda, which is let's try and remake uh, Australia, rather than just go back to status quo. Sure, let's build, you know, build on health, education, those sort of labour stronghold mm-hmm. issues. But there are differences. But it's still either way. The, the Liberals are nervous, friend. It's a, it's a fact. They are. They know they're in trouble. There is a trend nationally which is against them, and Scott Morrison is in serious trouble. Yeah. Now, if you if you like to look back a few years, there was a trend nationally uh, against the coalition last time too, and we all know what happened there. But that last election left a few seats a bit more fragile. One of them is Boothby. Obviously, it's been in Liberal hands since I think the Second World War, so it's pretty usually pretty safe territory. But it's now the third most marginal seat in the country and the sitting member, Nicole Flint, is, is is leaving. So, you know, they're vulnerable in Boothby simply by dint of the numbers. If there's any kind of swing, you'd think it could go. Um, Labor's got its eyes on Sturt. That used to be Christopher Pine's electorate. He'd been worried about it for quite a few elections. There'd been a lot of money spent in South Australia uh, in past elections and defence spending, for instance, and tech spending um, because Christopher Pine was sort of agitated, uh, agitating for South Australia and for his seat of Sturt. Um, but so it's been vulnerable for a few elections and has never gone. So I don't know how much they'd be counting on Sturt. There's a seat called Grey, which is a huge uh, rural regional seat. Um, if you look at the state election, electorates that cross over that federal electorate of Grey, there's some frailties there in the polling. An independent took a huge whack of the vote away from the Liberals at the state election. But, I, you know, there's not much that federal Labor could hunt for. Mm-hmm. I think Boothby really is the most likely one. But then again, Again, there's not a lot of seats that are going to have to change hands at this election for Scott Morrison for the coalition to lose, um, which would put it in, you know, hung parliament territory. The, the bigger job for Labor, they've got to win a number of seats. But, uh, you know, just losing Boothby would be, you know, damaging, dangerous for the for the coalition. So South Australia in play just a bit more for sure, I think. For sure. So th- what we're looking at here is also that news poll, which is... Uh, was found uh, inaccurate at the last federal poll. And I think ever since we were all a little cautious about polling, well, I can put my hand up recording this on a Thursday morning and saying I'm a little a little more comforted by the fact that the news poll prediction did actually um, eventuate in South Australia. There have been it's changes. It's so funny. It was so funny on election night, the fuss made of the fact that news poll was right. And it's yeah. like, hey, hey, news poll was right. Spread the word because it's, we'd all lost faith in the polls well, after the last federal. Well, we lost faith, uh, rightly, so, rightly so. Um, and, and, you know, the, the pollsters, all the different polls are very quick to tell us they've done a lot of work on their algorithms, changing the way they're asking the questions and evaluating them and weighting them. Um, maybe it's worked. 
I don't know. But yes, everybody listen up. News poll is right in South Australia. In one example. So let's see federally. I mean, I'm not going poll crazy yet, uh, but either way it does. I think the Prime Minister would have been looking closely. I mean, the Liberal team would have been looking closely at that and thinking, hmm, oh dear. Uh, And there's no doubt about it. But look... Clearly what it did, and I think this is so important in politics, and I suspect you agree very much here, is psychologically gave Labor a boost, particularly, and we're going to get into it with Laura Tingle, our guest, but at at a time that they needed a psychological boost as they were kind of in a bit of uh, turmoil over allegations after the death of Senator Kimberly Kitching. So it did give them that morale boost. You know, we're on a winning ticket. We've got uh, Albanese leading us. He's just like Malinowskis. I don't think they're actually, you know, <laughs> identical figures, but the idea that their agendas perhaps are similar mm. and they provide this forward-looking, uh, as they want to frame it, long-term. And they're all about talking about that. And the, the talking is important, the rhetorical part long-term planning um, and and alive to the fact that people are grumpy in the community. That's when the budget comes in, right? Governments think, how do we placate a grumpy electorate? We give them cash giveaways in a budget. It worked for the government to some degree at the last election. That was seen as a very strong platform for the for the Morrison government going into the election. Josh Frydenberg, you know, is firmly firmly believes that last the, his last budget really helped give them the boost they needed going to the election campaign. Can they do it again this time? It's harder this time. It's much harder this time. Circumstances have shifted, but it is their only last hope that they were are able to appease, particularly some of the massive concerns in the community, and we know what they are, cost of living, mm. uh, cost of living relief. Now, the Prime Minister and the Treasurer have made it clear that the budget will deal with that, but they are very specific about how it will deal with that. They say it's about short-term um, relief, not baking it into the budget. And we will talk about this with Laura Tingle because they draw a contrast between their approach, which will be about that relief, targeted is another word they use, and they are trying to paint Labor as big spending and having, um, you know, none, none of that sort of targeted short-term Targeted, approach. temporary. Yeah. But at the same time, we are in full pre-budget mode. Uh, the leaks you mentioned, they're big and they're strong and they will keep happening right up until budget day because the government wants to get bang for its buck every single day for any announcement it will make uh, leading up to the budget. Uh, we're recording this on a Thursday morning. The Prime Minister will announce more details about this multi-billion dollar mRNA vaccine hub in Melbourne. Um, that's in partnership with the Victorian government and Moderna. Uh, you know, that's that's about, it'll be sold as future-proofing mm. us against future pandemics, but also, you know, this ongoing pandemic and clearly we're living with COVID now. Anthony Albanese has begun doing his own version of the same, even though he's been kind of rattled, I think, a little bit this week with the Kimberly Kitching criticisms. But Today announcing, as I say, Thursday morning, uh, 340,000 tech jobs by 2030. So really, what, what, what am I saying by all of this? There's a bidding war going on between the two, and that's because you are right. There is an election in the air. It must happen soon. It cannot be avoided. It will happen. We're nearly in it. Exactly. I think that's the perfect note to bring in our guest, don't you? Let's do it. <laughs> Laura Tingle is the Chief Political Correspondent for the ABC's 7.30 program. And our guest, welcome to the party room. 
Well, hello there. Well, hello there, Laura. Hey, Laura, the federal budget's on Tuesday, a very exciting time, I know, for the likes of you and me and PK and many others. But we've seen some big speeches in the setup this week from the Treasurer and the Shadow Treasurer. Labor's Jim Chalmers, uh, his big speech was, his big message was really that now is not the time to flick the budget switch to austerity. They're not going to turn off the tap for struggling families simply because this is massive debt and deficit looming. But he's also trying to paint Labor as responsible financial managers who won't just kind of spray money around unnecessarily was the quote, I think. How tricky is this for Labor, Laura? They need to have some big ideas on offer to the electorate, but big ideas cost money. A lot of it. Well, it does cost a lot of money. Um, I don't, I maybe, you know, call, call me old fashioned. I, I don't think it's as tricky as it would have been three years ago. Uh, I mean, considering we've come from, you know, back in black. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't, didn't go so well. Uh, given just the, uh, the, the sheer scale of spending in the meantime by the government. And also, I think, Fran, the, the change in people's perceptions about the fact that they want governments to do stuff. Mm, they like getting money. Well, they, they it's not necessarily money, but they're sort of, you know, they're under pressure at home with cost of living issues uh, and they've just seen governments not do stuff. Mm. So um, I think that changes uh, the whole framework in which people are going to be regarding this budget and debt and deficits is not going to be an argument that the government's going to be pushing all that hard. So I think it, I think it, as you say, both our sides have made significant speeches trying to sort of rework the, the landscape on this a bit. And I think it, it will really be quite a different debate from the one we've had uh, fairly ad nauseum now for the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah. Laura, the government says it, its spending plans are you know, essentially better than Labor's because they're not baking in structural long-term spending, that it's about short-term relief, that it's highly targeted. That's the kind of language we heard this week, particularly from the finance minister, Simon Birmingham. But is that going to cut it? Because you just said it, people want governments to do stuff. And I, I, there was this one quote, Laura, which really struck me where he said, you know, Labor wants to promise virtually free childcare. And I thought, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe it that way. Simon Birmingham, I think people might like that. Yeah, and I would have said, what, short-term relief, like giving people, you know, three weeks of income support when they've just lost their house and their job and their community in northern New South Wales. Um, but I think I think that's right. I think it's, I mean, I think one of the things that's happened in the last three years is that the nature of government has changed. Um, the, uh, the spending has changed. We know, and it's not a lot of it has necessarily had anything to do with the pandemic, but in areas like aged care and child care, there's been a significant change in the in what governments have to do. Mm. Uh, now, that's happened under the government's watch. And we know in aged care that we've got this uh, work values case coming up in the Fair Work Commission, uh, uh, which starts next month. Uh, now, that's going to probably look at a really significant increase in uh, aged care workers' fees, uh, 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 wages. salaries, uh, w- wages. And that's, I mean, th- there's a 25% wage claim, which sort of most people would normally say, you know, oh, if it was, if you said, oh, somebody wants a 25% wage claim, you'd go, oh, well, you know, you're dreaming and, you know, how outrageous. But we we all know how badly aged care workers are paid. And we ran a piece uh, on 7.30 a couple of weeks ago pointing out that aged care nurses are paid between 25% and 48% less than nurses in other sectors. So there is 
and, and the bottom line of uh, aged care workers' wages and aged care nurses' wages are that it's going to come down to how much subsidy the government provides. Mm-hmm. And uh, that means that we're looking at billions of dollars, whoever's in government. So, And, and uh, wages is only part of it. I mean, the Royal Commission found that, yeah. but it found a whole lot of other change and spending needed to occur. And I really do think aged care is, I do think it's an issue bubbling away in the electorate and people aren't happy yet. I mean, there was a piece on AM again yeah. today. Uh, you know, people don't see, haven't seen, they're not seeing the change that they want and expect. No, well, it does cost a lot. Um, the NDIS is another area. Childcare is another area. These are all things where people actually have expectations about quality of care. And even though governments have sort of been dragged kicking and screaming to spending the money, because it's going to be a decision of the Fair Work Commission, they're going to just have to deal with it. Uh, so I think it's been coming for a while and it's sort of been a bit hidden by the pandemic, but I think it's sort of out there and it's going to be something that whatever the government says about you know, Labor's baking in uh, structural change, it's going to be baked in by both sides. Yeah, but just just before we leave this, if you, if Labor is baking in structural change, and it, and it is, if it's promising, you know, almost free childcare, for instance, there is always pressure on, on both sides, but on an opposition particularly, I think, and it's caught Labor in the past, of, OK, well, what are you not spending then? How are you going to offset that? So if, you, if you're baking in some structural spending, you need to be baking out something, don't you? Well, perhaps. Um, I mean, this is the great glaring gap. There's there's a few interesting things happening here. If you look at what Josh Frydenberg has said himself, he's basically saying, well, the budget's going to be substantially improved. So that shows how red hot we are as managers. But he's also conceding that that's basically coming about because... um, uh, people have got back into jobs uh, and commodity prices are lifting uh, as well, which has just given a new, all new um, 2022 revenue boom to the budget. It's not because they're, sp- they're cutting back spending anywhere. Essentially, what Josh Frydenberg is saying is, well, w- we will take that extra money that we're getting because the economy's lifted up. Um, and we won't spend a whole heap more of it. So I think they're going to be a bit disingenuous about mm. that because of the th- things we're talking about already, like aged care. Um, there will be pressure on Labor to sort of look like um, they're being responsible, so they won't have you know huge big ticket items, um, you know, all over the place like they did last time round. But they will target a couple of particular things and just say these are things that we have to do. Now, I want to switch if we can, because the big, big uh, issue that's sort of dogged Labor in the last week or so have been these factional tensions within the ALP that have really increased after the tragic death of Senator Kimberly Kitching. Now, at her funeral, her husband, Andrew Landerieu, went right there, uh, taking aim at those who he said had worked against her. And of course, there's a lot I could say about the unpleasantness of a cantankerous cabal, not all of them in Parliament, that was aimed at Kimber. And the intensity of it did baffle and hurt her. But I hope it's sufficient to say she deserves so very much better. Uh, look, this has really become uh, something uh, that I think has, has boiled over very much in the Labor Party. Uh, Laura, there was really no veneer of unity, was there? Well, it's been it's been sort of a pretty horrible experience. I mean, obviously, um, people are very uh, aggrieving because uh, Kimberly Kitching's 
has died. Uh, but you know, if, if you, it's sort of been interesting to watch the sort of transformation of this story since her death. You know, it started off, um, you know, shock. Uh, this young woman, relatively young woman, uh, sort of dies suddenly. Uh, then there was all this retribution that came out, uh, but also this sort of idea of, oh, you know, yuck, that's not very nice to be talking about that before she's even had a funeral. And that had all sorts of morphing aspects to it because, you know, there was a lot of criticism about the media covering this story, uh, saying it was disrespectful to her family, when in fact it was basically, as we saw uh, in Andrew Landerieu's speech, her family and her sort of factional uh, allies who were, you know, putting this story out there. Uh, and I think the fact that, you know, f for some of those people, you know, it was redolent of a factional play and that and it was seen like that uh, by some of um, the other people in the Labor Party that essentially they were sort of loading onto the back of Kimberley Kitching's death this, uh, you know, this, this factional struggle which in some ways I think was much more important than the sort of headline-grabbing one about her relationship with her Senate colleagues. Um, and I, I've, I've got to say I've, I found the whole thing you know, deeply disturbing, to say the least, uh, because, you know, everything is all mixed up, but to effectively have people cl claiming that um, that somebody was killed by the stress of the way they were dealt with uh, is sort of... A new a new place in Australian politics, mm. and it also I suppose, you know, there was a sort of a certain element of beatification of Kimberly Kitching, which sort of made her sort of sound like a bit of a, you know, a shrinking violet. And that, if there was one thing that Kimberly Kitching wasn't, it was a shrinking violet. She was, you know, she played tough. She was a factional warrior. Um, her faction uh, had long been dominant in Victorian Labor until recent years. And there was a feeling amongst, uh, well, there was a feeling from some of what some of her colleagues were saying, I think, in, in the time after her death, which suggested they've just never quite got used to the fact that they're not running things, and mm. particularly because there's a federal intervention in, in place at the moment. Yeah, and, and that that is absolutely right. And I too, you know, was troubled by, and I think it is, it is outrageous to make any suggestion that... Uh, there is no evidence that she died of anything other than a suspected heart attack, right? And that's and that's mm. that's right. But separately discussing what actually transpired here and why people seem so upset. Mm. On Wednesday, opposition leader Anthony Albanese denied the notion that the Labor leadership team had previously ignored the late senator's complaints about colleagues. Here he is. I had a number of one-on-one meetings with Kimberley uh, since I've been uh, the leader of the Labor Party. At no stage. Uh, did she uh, complain to me uh, about any issues uh, at all? So that's Anthony Albanese when he basically merged and was asked. Now, this has become, I think, difficult for Anthony Albanese, Laura, because you talk about factions. Well, let's, let's you know, call a spade a spade. Uh, Anthony Albanese's left-wing faction aligned with people like Senator Penny Wong uh, are the faction that's being kind of put in the firing line here from Bill Shorten's grouping uh, mm. with Senator Kimberly Kitching. What's, what do you make of uh, Albanese's response here? Was it adequate? Look, I think, uh, you know, just in political terms, he, he and, and, uh, and the team uh, were somewhat flat-footed uh, in responding to this. Now, they started off saying, look, it's not respectful to be discussing all of this, which I think people sort of took as, 
um, you know, in good faith at the beginning. But as these stories started to be uh, sort of circulated by um, uh, Kimberly Kitching's uh, factional allies, they didn't seem to know what exactly to do to do about it. Now, there are a couple of separate issues here. One of them is, um, is there a bad culture in politics uh, that needs to be addressed? Um, well, you know, it's a tough game. Um, and uh, I think we've seen that on both sides of politics. If there is a, a, an issue where somebody thinks that they've been bullied, um, that should be addressed. The bottom line, whether we like it or not, whether Kimberly Kitching's allies like it or not, is that um, a lot of her colleagues didn't trust her. They felt that she was briefing uh, to the media, to um, to the government, um, to all sorts of people, above and beyond what is a normal amount of briefing, because we all know that that happens. So, so Laura, the question now, I suppose, is though, where does this go for Labor? What do they do next? Because this has been happening, in a sense, within the Labor family, this division playing out. It's really knocked Anthony Albanese's momentum off, um, given the government a bit of a respite, I think, um, mm. given Scott Morrison a couple of, of easy lines. As Nikki Saver wrote this week in the Nine Papers, it would be political kamikaze for Labor to carry this, this division into the election campaign. Others are pointing out a, a Roy Morgan poll this week uh, on the question of Australian political leaders with the highest net trust score, Penny Wong topping that list. Um, do you think, you know, Penny Wong, it's been very difficult for her. She's one of Labor's key um, key performers, I think, and would be ca- you'd expect carrying a lot of the election campaigning. Um, how do they manage this now? And what do you think it's going to do to their election campaigning or their momentum? Uh, well, look, it has cost them uh, momentum. Uh, and um, uh, for anybody who says it hasn't, you, all, all you have to do is look at how little we saw of Anthony Albanese in the mm. last week. Um, he just, he just, he did go to ground, uh, and yep. um, he's he's re- regrouping uh, as the week ends and trying to explain this. Um, I think, I think it has co- cost him a bit of paint, and certainly cost Penny Wong a bit of paint. But you know, she starts with um, a very high uh, respect. Uh, sort of level, as you've described it in the polls, it's not going to be devastating for her. Is it going to be an ongoing issue? Well, I don't think it is. Um, I think if they can pre- if they can sort out the pre-selections in Victoria, because that is where the real power play is going mm. on. And the real grief is. Yeah, yeah. that, that they, 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 have to, they have to land that. Um, and we're, let's face it, we're only about a week from an election, so they better do it pretty quickly. They have to land that, and that's where the real sort of... Um, you know the really aggressive uh, factional stuff rests um, when they when they do that it'll be a thing that is sub- subsumed by the budget election announcements all those things it mm. does however uh, constrain uh, and um, uh, and make more difficult the gov- the labor attack on the government for behaving in exactly these sorts of ways <laughs> i mean yeah. the, the coalition has all these seats it hasn't pre-selected in new south wales and uh, you know, which is just gobsmacking, but uh, Labor seems to be buying buying into that territory itself, and uh, and is uh, is brought down as a result. Yeah, the pre-selection story is just bizarre too, isn't mm. it, Laura? Like the election could be called right after the budget, but yeah, it could why be next Friday? They, why haven't they got their? I want to say a swear word. Why haven't they got their stuff together here? I don't look. I don't get it. The only explanation that I seem to be able to see on the government side is this 
thing that um, Scott Morrison says in a wide variety of uh, forums these days, fora if you prefer, uh, <laughs> whether it's um, premiers, as, as national cabinet or whatever, which is I am the prime minister. And essentially he wants to impose his will on the New South Wales branch uh, about all these pre-selections. The New South Wales branch isn't wearing it and increasingly the other divisions of the party are also highly alarmed at the way this is has been playing out because the view is if uh, the coalition does win the election and Scott Morrison gets his way in New South Wales, he'll be trying to run the party around the rest of the country um, like his own fiefdom and they don't like it at all. Uh, but once again, given, given that this should be an absolutely you know, huge story. Um, it's, I mean, it's going to court, for goodness sake, in the Supreme Court in New South Wales. Um, given that this is such a huge story, why on earth would you, uh, if you're Labor, then um, decide to run uh, somebody in a, in a marginal seat like uh, Parramatta, who's upsetting all the locals and putting the attention back on yourself for exactly the same sort of behaviour. And you're referring, of course, Laura, to Andrew Charlton, who yes. was a you know, long-term, very senior Labor staffer, uh, Accenture um, uh, senior person. Pretty talented, you'd have to say. He's, yeah. look, he, he, he's, they're trying to no, parachute him in, right? To they're a trying very to parachute him in. Seat. Yeah, they're trying to parachute him in uh, to a very multicultural seat. Uh, he's, uh, without a doubt, a, a person of great talent. But why you'd be doing it effectively a week before the election mm -hmm. is called. Um, I mean, Christina Keneally was parachuted in. She had, she's got more sort of, uh, shall we say, uh, street cred in a way than he does just because she's a New South Wales Premier. She's got a recognition factor. They moved her in 12 months ago. Why you'd move some guy who most people have never heard of? And, I mean, you do, you're doing him a damage and a disservice, really, because... Uh, he, he, the only thing most voters in that electorate will know about him was that he was parachuted in. They won't know all that much else about him. Well, except it's, that he's got a $16 million house in Bellevue Hill, apparently. I think yes, that's the line exactly. that they might remember. Yes. Hey, Laura, just, just briefly and finally, there was mm. just one line that really caught my attention this week, uh, and it was in the context of the, the Kimberley Kitchen criticism within Labor that Scott Morrison just spotting a new chance for a new line of attack on Anthony Albanese. Let's hear it. What we've got from Anthony Albanese at the first sign of hard questions, and we're not even into the campaign yet, he has gone into complete hiding. Frankly, I think it's pretty gutless. Pretty gutless. Took me right back to, I think it was the 98 campaign when John Howard accused Kim Beasley of having no ticker. That mm. hurt Kim Beasley. Do you think this is going to hurt Anthony Albanese or he's sensitive to it? Well, I think a couple of things, um, you know, just as a, a as a broad framing thing, if you think about the last month or so, we've seen tactics from the government which you would normally expect in the last desperate days of an election campaign. They think they're going to lose. Things like the national security, car key election, all those things. The fact that they are targeting Anthony Albanese, I think, is going to be the defining factor of this election campaign because, as somebody said to me, Scott Morrison can't remake himself now. You know, the, the, the voters don't like him um, and they've pretty much made up their minds about him. So the only option really is for Labor to lose this election and for the government to be able to prosecute the case against Labor. So uh, that's that's the background to it. Um, I think it is a real problem for Anthony Albanese that he hasn't really been under that much scrutiny. Um, and he, I think this incident has shown him, uh, you know, not not sort of on the front foot. So he's going to have to really address that in the next few weeks. Laura, picking your enormous brain is always such a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the podcast. 
Lovely to talk to you both. Enormous. Thanks, Laura. See you. Have a great election campaign. Yeah, you too. <laughs> See ya. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. I think it's Mick Cavzini who writes to us, why do the same people who vote Labor at a state level vote Liberal at the federal election? Queensland and Western Australia are, of course, the most marked polarisations. Is it because voters want good services like hospitals and schools from the state, but they also want to pay lower taxes? Uh, thank you, Josh, says this person. Is it unfair to think they've been fooled into thinking they can have both? Uh, no, I don't think it's unfair. And I think there's mixed reasons for it. I mean, politicians after every state election, federal politicians say that the voters are smart enough to be able to differentiate between state and federal issues. So what you say there, Mick, is perhaps true, that people know that it's the state governments that deliver their services. Though more and more, especially in the last few years, federal government has got involved in service delivery as well, with mixed success, it has to be said. And there's also something to the theory that um, voters take out insurance. Some in in some states in particular, they like to know that they've got, you know, a bit of this and a bit of that. So they've got a, they might have a, a, a state election, a state government locally of one colour. And so they think, oh, we'll give the feds a go uh, of the other colour. So there's there's some of that that goes on too. But um, really, it, it's, it's not a solid rule for any state. So... I don't know, PK. What do you reckon? Yeah, people aren't mugs. I do think people can tell the difference between the state and the federal government. Um, and also, you can't discount the actual teams available, right? Like, so let's think of somewhere like WA, that example. Mark McGowan is personally very popular. He's, he's you know, made himself a distinctive Labor leader that is different to what is offered federally, potentially. So I just, I do think there are significant differences and people can see them. Um Back to the theory that people buy themselves insurance, I think it's important to raise that that's actually one of the hopes of the federal government at the moment. They're hoping that mm. with the flipping of some of the states, and we've just seen it obviously in South Australia, as we were talking about earlier, that that might help them, that people, you know, will, you know, I mean, Victoria will go, oh, we've got a state Labor government, you know, that that, that, that might that might actually assist them in some way that they might might not mind. And that's, I think, the Prime Minister's sort of hope to, you know, having a federal Liberal government and then, you know, flipping the states. Oh, I don't know if anyone really goes that deep into the weeds of that sort of psychology, but... Um, I think when the swing is on, a swing is on. <laughs> and yeah. if it's true that people are very, very cranky with Scott Morrison, which is what the current narrative is based on the polls and the feeling in the community, then I don't think they'll say, oh, we've just got ourselves a state Liberal government, so I'd like some product differentiation. They might want to punish the national government too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if the swing is on, the swing is on. We just got to wait and see if it is. Not have to. Is it on? Don't is have to on? wait long now. Actually, I just want to find out how people are really feeling, rather than just maybe their their surveyed opinions. <laughs> All right, <laughs> send your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag the Party Room, or you can email your questions to the Party Room at abc.net.au. And remember, you can follow the Party Room on your ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. And rate and review us on uh, whatever app you use, but I, iTunes as well. It's really worth it. Then PK it loves it when you review us. She absolutely loves I it. Go she goes to bed reading it at night. Yeah. So please yeah. send them in.
It's the last thing I do, uh, you know, 8pm, get myself tucked into bed, reading reading the reviews. I've got to get a life. All right, Fran, lovely to hang out with you again. See ya. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.